Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. We were talking about, of course, the shooting in El Paso yesterday, the shooting in Dayton, Ohio last night. Um, What bothers me kind of so much as these things become more common is that after that initial wow, after the initial kind of, you know, like jaw drop and, and, and the horror of the thing, like we are finding it increasingly easy to just kind of go back to living normal days, right? And we're kind of saddened and shocked at the details. Um, but honestly, we're no longer really surprised that they happen. And I, I actually find myself kind of wanting and, and, and hoping and praying even that God would bother me about these things because I don't want to just get to the point where I take them for granted. I don't want to get to the point where I just accept them as a reality. I, 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 don't, I don't want evil to win, and uh, I know that it is God's plan for His church to be that first and, and primary response to that. But, you know, as we face all of this and you look at the solutions that are available in our world, um, I don't know about y'all, but does anybody besides me have this sense that probably nobody in Washington is going to be able to fix this? Right? I mean, like, come on, right? Uh, do any of us really trust our politicians to put an end to kind of the senseless violence and tragedy? And I, I think that most of us would, would agree that that's probably not going to happen. And really, when you look at the, the power of a government, or maybe we might say the lack of power um, of a secular government, we realize that there's no government of this world that really has the ability to make people good. It just doesn't happen. It's been said of America that we're a nation of laws, and I believe that. I believe in that. But what is very clear is that we actually need those laws because there is a huge chunk of society who just simply are not predisposed to be good people. And the question that you will not hear on any news station, the question you will not hear answered by any of the talking heads or any of the interviews that happen um, as they do over the next few hours, the next few days, um, is how we can change people so that they don't want to be the kind of people that do evil. You won't hear that question asked. You won't hear that topic discussed. How can we change people so that they don't want to do evil? And I keep coming back to this idea, and we've talked about this at City Grace for a while now, and we probably still will as long as I'm pastor, but really the power of a secular society is limited to try and make laws that limit evil. But that's about all we can do in terms of our secular government, our secular society. We're limited to making laws that try to limit evil. But we are never completely, in a secular sense, going to take away the evil that exists within people's hearts. And and our society is built on laws, but the fact of the matter is laws don't make people good. Rules do not make people good. There are speeding laws to stop you from going too fast. Do they work? Yeah, you know they don't. Come on. Anybody else got a personal invitation to visit a judge before? Like I have, right? I mean... It's a privilege, it's an honor, but of course we don't like those. But there are speeding laws that exist to keep us from going too fast, but speeding laws will never make you a good driver. Hello. There are tax laws to kind of force us to contribute to the the collective needs of a society that we live within, but tax laws will never make you a generous person. There are substance abuse laws, but substance abuse laws will never make you happy and the kind of person that doesn't want to be addicted or chained to something. There are marriage laws that exist and spousal abuse laws that exist, but they won't make you a good husband. They won't make you a good wife. There are child abuse laws, and child abuse laws are great, and we need them, but they will never make people good parents. Laws don't make people good. 
All laws do is tell you how low your behavior can go before the rest of us need to step in and do something about it. But how low we can go and, and what we can be, or the potential that we have as, as human beings created in the image of God, there was a huge gap between what, we're cre- what we were created to be and what, or rather the lowest point or lowest version of ourselves that we can actually slip to or fall to. You may make laws that stop some people from buying guns to kill, and I'm not even saying that we don't need those laws, but those laws will never be able to make those people the kind of people who are loving and giving and gentle and kind to other people. The fact of the matter is we're just simply incapable of making people good. We can't make our kids good. We try, right? We can't even make ourselves good. Can somebody groan in the room this morning? And that's really what's at stake here. That's really what is at stake, is trying to make people good. And it doesn't seem like any power that we know, any system, any government that we know in our secular society is able to make people good. But I am a pastor, and I do know a guy. Right? Come on, somebody. Somebody say, you don't want to know me without Jesus. Right? I am a pastor, I do know a guy, and his name is Jesus, and in this room even are stories of transformation and life change and character change, and it's just amazing to me knowing some of the background and some of the history that is in this room, what God has done through Jesus Christ. And, but the thing is, and the problem is within our society, it just seems that not enough people seem to want to let Jesus define what is good in life. That's really a problem that I see. There are a lot of people who say that Jesus was a good man. But there are not the same number of people who say that they want to follow his brand of good. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and I don't have time to get into that today. That's not the message of today. We're not the only generation, though, to struggle with following Jesus and kind of allowing him to be the good setter the standard setter of what is good in terms of people. His own people that he came to, the Jewish people, they didn't like him. They wanted to kick him out, right? The ones who should have been expecting him, the ones who should have been embracing him and welcoming him, they turned on him and they pushed Jesus to the edges of their society as well. They, put, they painted him as, as a rebel and a criminal. And finally, when the good that he did could no longer be silenced, it was just it was too apparent. It was too obvious. It had touched too many people and too many lives. When the lives that he changed became too many to ignore, they weaponized human government. And they used human government as a tool to execute an innocent man named Jesus. But what's not disputed by the people who love him, what's not disputed by the people who hate him, or the people that could go either way, is that Jesus was good. He was good. He was a supreme good. I I love listening to, uh, there's a man named Ravi Zacharias who is a Christian apologist. Um, He didn't grow up as a Christian. He wasn't raised as a Christian. He grew up um, in a a pluralistic society, and he has an amazing testimony of his own. But now he travels all over the world in Cambridge and Oxford and Yale and all of these really you know, smart places filled with smart people, and he talks to people on stage and, and has open forums and accepts questions. He used to do debates, but he said he doesn't do that so much anymore because it just felt like a bunch of arguing with nobody really getting to, to ask the, the deep things that were going on. But he talks about the fact that one day he went and he was visiting actually with some of the leaders uh, among the Buddhist societies, and, and, and he asked one of the, the leaders of this Buddhist society and its current iteration, current leadership, 
He asked them, what was the quintessential life? Who was just kind of the penultimate, you know, life or example that the world has ever seen as an example to the rest of us of how to be and who that we should model ourselves after? And the, the, one of the leaders within that Buddhist system looked at him and said, Jesus Christ was the quintessential life for all of humans to model themselves after. It's amazing. Nobody, even people of competing religions, do not deny that Jesus was so very good. And one of his closest followers, his name was John. And if you, have your, if you have a Bible in the new part of your Bible, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It starts with those four. John, the man that wrote that document, maybe the last document that was actually written chronologically speaking. But John saw Jesus square off against the Romans who were in power during Jesus' time. He saw him square off against the Jewish uh, political and religious forces that were there who had had him ultimately executed, who came up with a conspiracy. <clears throat> Excuse me to ultimately have him executed. When all of that happened, John was absolutely wrecked because John had actually put his trust and his hopes in Jesus. And when he saw Jesus executed, it wrecked him. It ruined all of his hope because he thought Jesus was the ultimate thing as well. He thought he was the ultimate life as well. And he thought he was the Messiah and going to be the savior of everything. And John actually stopped following Jesus when he saw Jesus die. All of his disciples did because Jesus had claimed to be more than just another man, more than just a good teacher, more than just another good philosopher. There had been many good teachers, good men, good philosophers throughout history. And if Jesus died and stayed dead, then he was just one of many others. And so when John saw Jesus die, he unfollowed Jesus. But three days later, three days later, John saw an empty tomb. John saw a resurrected and risen Jesus Christ. And after that point, John, who had believed and then doubted, John began to believe again because there was something about the life of Jesus that not even death could be victorious over. The life of Jesus could not be snuffed out. The light of Jesus could not be put out even by death itself. And it wasn't even that Jesus died and then kind of like came back from the dead, like, you know, they had to bandage him up, like do some surgery, right? And he's like stumbling around, like hanging on to an IV pole. No, Jesus had actually died and passed through death into some other kind of life. And when they saw Jesus after his resurrection, John said he was light, he was radiance, he was brilliance. There was something about the life of Jesus Christ. And so John wrote his memoir of Jesus' public career. And after seeing all of the evil that had come against Jesus and all of the darkness that had tried to snuff out his light and all of the hate and the nationalism and the racism of the day, the political jockeying and all of the broken ideas of power and, and control exposed for what they were, John witnessed all of those forces just rising like a storm to try and overwhelm Jesus. And yet John still was able to write this at the end of his life. In him, talking about Jesus, was life. That was a real life, John was saying. And that life was the light of all mankind. And that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it. There was something about Jesus, John is saying, that absorbed all of evil's worst. He stood tall against evil. He didn't shrink from evil. And when it looked like evil had swallowed Jesus up, he came out the other side and that darkness has never been able to overshadow the light of Jesus Christ. And then John saw something in Jesus though that was, that was beyond anything he had ever seen. John saw something in Jesus that just didn't wipe out his opposition, just didn't decimate his enemies, but something went 
past what Jesus had experienced. A new kind of force was unleashed into this evil world that had put Jesus to death. And John tells us about it in verse 11 and 12. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him yet to all who did receive him. To his enemies, we would see later. To those who had persecuted him. To those that had lied about him. To those that would later on try and put to death and arrest his own followers. To all who did receive Jesus. To those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become a different kind of child. To become a different kind of person. Almost like, anybody ever gone through life and you just wish you had like a reset? Anybody ever wish you had, like, life had a do-over button? Hello, somebody. Bonk, like, do-over on some day. John is saying, yes, there is a new birth that Jesus puts on offer. There is a new beginning that Jesus has put on offer for all of humanity. And to those who believe in his name, and this is just, I'm getting off my notes, but stick with me for a second. John, who wrote this in the original Greek, this believed in thing, this was a new thing. that had never been done in Greek literature before. Believed in. It's almost like y'all are sitting on chairs, right? When you go, you know that awkward transition when you're about to go from standing to sitting? And it's like there's that point where you're starting to do the squat until your muscles give out. Hello, somebody over 40 with me, right? And then you just kind of fall the rest of the way into the chair. You know what you are doing in that moment? You are believing in that chair. Anybody ever put their belief in the wrong chair? <laughs> like, <laughs> I believed in that chair till I came around, you know, like, but no, John is, I'm getting, man, I'm way off my nose. John is saying to those who believed in his name, who leaned themselves, who rested themselves in his name. And this name thing, anybody remember that old song, Stop in the Name of Love? You guys remember that? You guys remember the dance? I'm not doing the dance. Stop in the name of love. What's it talking about? In the authority of love, because of the power of love, the force of love is arresting you from walking away. To those who believed in his name, his power, his force, his authority, that thing about Jesus that captures and captivates you and won't let you look away, to those who believe in that, who rest in that, who put your hope in that, who put all of your values and who you are and your identity into who Jesus is and who Jesus says you are, there's a do-over. There's a do-over. You can become a completely different kind of person. The light, John said, the true light It was a different kind of light. It was a different kind of life. And that light has extended a hand of mercy in the face of all evil. And then John watched everybody who wouldn't accept him, who wouldn't believe in him, who wouldn't rest in him. He just watched the darkness and the evil turn on itself. And the evil that had used the Jewish religious system ended up turning and wiping out the Jewish religious system. The evil that had used the Roman Empire to help the Jewish people put him to death, they turned around and they besieged the city of Jerusalem and decimated the Jewish people. And then after that, throughout history, John watched time and time again, ruler after ruler again, come along and try and squash the Jesus movement like a bug. But after all of the evil and all of the darkness and all of the energy that was wasted against Jesus and against his followers, after darkness had done its worst, at the end of his life, John John is writing, the darkness came against him, but the darkness could not overcome him. And it's a...
thought that once you became a Christian, you started to get it all right. The darkness is still trying to overwhelm you, but thank God for mercy and grace that even in my life, the darkness has not overcome his light. So, if the Jesus life, if the Jesus example, if his story was so compelling and so enduring and so powerful, why aren't more people following Jesus? Why not? And in this room even, there's a lot of different reasons. Maybe you're just coming back to following Jesus or thinking about it or trying to plug back into following Jesus. And look, I get it. I don't condemn you for that. I don't condemn anybody for that. I have my story. You have your story. If I had grown up in your shoes, if I had grown up in your home with your parents, with your mentors and your influences and, and your troubles and your questions and your doubts, I'd see life just like you do. You're not dumb. You're smart most of the time. Like, you know, we're not dumb. We're smart some of the time. Okay, you know, every once in a while we get smart, but I get it. Like all of us have these things that happen to us in life, but why, why? Why, when things happen and when darkness comes and when things seem to go wrong, why do we question the one who is unquestionably good? Why do we question Jesus? And I think that there's one general principle that we probably all would agree on that we've probably seen happen in our own stories, and that's the fact that people are content with what little light we have until we realize that our light is not bright enough. We're content living life under the, the illumination of our own light until a divorce happens, until... We lose our jobs until we can't break an addiction, until we can't figure out why we're sick or how to get past a tragedy that has happened. I'm good enough, right? All of us have thought this to some extent. Anybody ever said, well, I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect? No, you don't want to raise your hands, you bunch of chickens. Nobody's perfect. Anybody ever said that? Come on, let's see your hands. Come on, admit it. Own it. I'm pausing right here. Nobody's perfect. Who said it? All the rest of you are liars, so you might as well go ahead and raise your hand right now. I'm just kidding. We've all said it, that nobody's perfect, which is a really big deal if you think about it. If you admit that nobody's perfect, what you are saying is that there is a perfect outside of myself that nobody is. By saying nobody's perfect, you're admitting that there is a perfect that does exist. Mm, I wonder who that could be. But I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but I'm just not that bad, right? I'm just not that bad, and we grade ourselves on a curve. It's what we like to do, and, but we keep bumping up against the painful reality that the little light that we have isn't enough to light up the darkness inside of us. I'm not perfect. It's the same thing as saying we all have a little bit of darkness inside of us. We thought we had it handled. We thought we had it beat, but we know that we can't change it. And we know for sure that our, our little light cannot, it can't change us for sure. It can't change the people around us in our world. And then, then all of the fighting and all of the politicking, and all of the division that happens and that we see and that we hear and that we're so sick of, it just comes from people who are all, are all claiming that their version of light is the true and the pure version of light and your version of light and your understanding of what's going on. You have the wrong light and you need to see the world in my light. And even in the history of religion, this is when religion is at its worst, when people try and force their version of light onto somebody else. It just never, never works. In fact, a man named Paul who steps onto the pages of history actually with his name being Saul. Saul was someone who thought he had the right version of light. 
As it turns out, he was actually thinking that he was a follower of the one true creator God. And, and, and he was actually good when he steps onto the pages of history at hurting everyone who was against his religion, at hurting most notably Christians, Jesus followers. When Paul steps onto the pages of history, he hated Christians, the single greatest Christian hater of his day. He did more damage single-handedly than maybe any other person, and, and he thought he was right. He thought he was in the right light by rejecting Jesus, but Paul was doing right by shutting down and shutting out what he thought was darkness, but he started killing people. He started having people arrested. How messed up and how confused is somebody when their religion's answer is to, to a problem is to kill those who don't believe? I mean, like somewhere you've gotten off track with that. Somehow you've missed the boat completely on who God is and what God is. But Paul just kept on pushing. He would arrest Christians. He would dispossess Christians. He would harm Christians and excommunicate Christians and drive them out of their cities and their countries and even have them killed. And one day he was on a road from Jerusalem to a city called Damascus, and he had a fresh batch of arrest warrants in his pocket. He's going to arrest more Christians, going to put more Christians in prison, going to put more Christians to death by trial and by execution. And an interesting thing happened. As he neared Damascus on his journey, look at this, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. It's the same light that John wrote about. It's the same light that was the light of all mankind. It was the only light powerful enough to withstand Paul's darkness. And the light that evil, even Saul's evil, was trying to overcome was about to overcome the darkness in Saul. Saul was an enemy of this light, and he's not on the right side of the light, and he's not making this up. This just arrested him. This is his story. He hated the light, and he hated the people of the light, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a, vo a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And man, Saul had to be scared out of his mind. Saul had to be absolutely frozen with fear. A light from heaven has knocked him off his feet, knocked him to the ground. He's blinded. Literally, Saul is blinded. He doesn't know what's going on. Something has exploded in front of him, and he knows that its source was from heaven. And the only thing that Saul can say is, who are you, Lord? He gets slapped upside the head by the light of Jesus Christ, and his first question is, who are you, right? And I remember a, um, a story I wanted to share this. I, I've shared this before. When Chelsea and I were first married, uh, I used to work for Sprint. And I was a field technician, so I had a truck and all this stuff, and I used to have to be on call, and sometimes late at night, they'd call us out, and we'd have to go fix the cell sites, you know, and make your cell phones work. And, and uh, we lived in the uh, River Run Apartments over in Vacaville, and we had a nice little apartment with a beautiful little payment. I wish I'd get that payment back. Uh, but uh, one night, it was late at night, 10, 11 o'clock at night, and they called me. I was on call, and they said, hey, there's a cell site. It's way out in Napa in the middle of a vineyard, and you have to go fix it. And so I, you know, got in my truck and started driving away, and left Chelsea there at home by herself in the apartment, you know, and I, I got about 15 minutes from the house and um, maybe a little bit longer uh, from the house. And then they called me and said, hey, we were able to fix it remotely. You can turn around and you can go home. So turned around, went home, but I had an idea. And I called Chelsea, told her, yeah, I just got here out in the middle of the vineyard. It's dark out here. It's dark. Oh, hold on, what's that noise? I heard something, right? There's no lights out here at all. Man, it's so, so, I, I hear something. I, I'm going to have to go. I, I got to let you go. And, and I sneaked into the apartment and she thought I was out in the vineyard and she was in our bedroom and she had the door closed in our bedroom in our tiny apartment. 
And so I sneaked into the apartment and walked up to the bedroom door and I just went on the bedroom door. And Chelsea goes, who is it? And I popped open the door. I was like, it's me. And she, you know, almost divorced me and, uh, you know, called her dad and uh, Bob chewed me out pretty good for that one. Uh, our relationship still hasn't really recovered from that incident, but I got in trouble for that one. But I was like, what are you doing? Who is it? What do you mean, who is it? Like, why aren't you out the bedroom window? Like, what are you doing staying, you know, who is it that's about to murder me? You know, like, no, why do you care about his name at that point? Just like, run, you know. I, I don't know, maybe you want to draw it in. Never mind, we'll just let it go. Just... But Saul gets struck to the ground, and Jesus is, Saul's like, who is it? Who are you, Lord? Who you are might tell me your intentions toward me, and if I call you Lord, maybe that'll tell you that I have good intentions toward you. And I think that this question shows that Saul realized something, that I've gotten it all horribly, horribly wrong. I've been living life by my own version of light, by my own version of right, but I have been seeing it all wrong. And what I thought was light within me, it turns out is actually darkness. And Saul knew all of the old Jewish rules. He knew all of the Old Testament and all of the commandments. He was an expert in all of it. But the rules had not been enough to make Saul good because laws and because rules don't make people good. And all it had done for Saul was allowed him to figure out a way to twist and to turn the laws. Hello, like lawyers do, right? Sorry to any lawyers in the room. Y'all are jerks sometimes. I'm just saying. like, But just to twist and to turn the laws, to use it as a weapon against the very children of God, against the people that God is trying to rescue and bring back to himself. Laws don't make people good. Saul needed a new light. Saul needed a better light, a new way to understand and navigate life. And so Saul is finally admitting and finally saying, in this moment, when I have been struck down by this thing, when it has put me on the ground and blinded me to my own way of seeing the world, finally in this moment, I want to know who you are. And by the way, can I call you my Lord? Can I call you my King, my Ruler? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus. And in that moment, I bet there was one name that Paul did not want to hear. Jesus. He's got in his pocket a bunch of arrest warrants for Jesus' followers. And I think Paul thought it was all over. I've been doing things to his followers, and he's about to do horrible things to me. I bet Paul thought he was toast. Paul knew how politics worked. Paul knew how power and power shifts work. He knew that power would take and and, and execute and and, and push down those who don't agree with their version of the life. But all Jesus says to him is a saying of mercy, and he offers Paul a new birth. He offers Paul the right to become a new child of God. And he tells him to get up. And to go into the city and someone would tell him what to do next. But Paul was still blind. Paul had to hesitatingly make his way back with some help to that city. And once the light of Jesus flashed around him, he was left to confront his darkness within. And it's the same thing with us. Once you really begin investigating the life of Jesus, once you really begin studying the life and the example of Jesus Christ, once you see him, 
as your Lord. I am telling you, once you see his light and his life and his mercy and his love and his grace, everything else will go dark in comparison. There is nobody like Jesus. There is nobody close to Jesus. No one can ever forgive you like Jesus can forgive you so completely and so fully. No one will ever put your broken heart back together like Jesus can put a broken heart back together. No one can ever take your despair and your hopelessness and you're wondering what's life all about and what are my future days going to be. No one can fill you with purpose and with a renewed vigor for life like Jesus can. There is nobody, nobody, nobody who can give you light like the light and the life of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you once, you, once you see him, everything else goes dark. Once you turn your eyes to Jesus, everything else fades in comparison. And if you're feeling that pull today, maybe you're starting to realize that it's, it's just, you know, maybe it's something on the inside, maybe in your relationships, things are just seemingly so dark on your own. Maybe there's uncertainty in your future and and, and your relationship with your kids is shaky. Maybe your job options are dim or the habits and addictions that you thought that you would be just keep popping up again and again and hiding the joys in life. And there's this haunting sense that that not everything in your life is as bright as it could be or as it should be, you know, but eh, your eyes have kind of, adjust, kind of adjusted to the dark. No, no, no. Stop looking within yourself. Stop seeing life within your own light and your own ability and your own resources and your own power. Look to Jesus. Turn your eyes to the life that was the light of all mankind. Put your hope and your trust in him. And we feel this and we know this. It's why we've come into services like today. It's why we gather here on Sundays. It's why like, we're going to be back on Wednesday night to worship together, to sing songs about Jesus, to lift up the name of Jesus and magnify the name of Jesus because as we make Jesus brighter, everything else fades away. Church family, as we make Jesus more glorious, not just with our lips, but with our hands and our feet and our arms and the things that we do, I am telling you against the light of Jesus Christ and his brilliance and his radiance that shines through us, the pain and the hurt and the chaos in our world will be shown for how truly dark it is. And he's pulling on you this morning. He's tugging on you. And it's why you're here. It's why you're here. It's why you're wrestling with it. You feel this pull and you wish that what you have felt today could be part of your everyday life. And it can. It so can. He can be there every moment of your life. Every morning that you wake up, the first thing that you do in the morning could be a conversation with Jesus Christ. It's the kind of light He is. He gives you the right. He gives you the ability, the privilege to become a child of God, to hit a big old do-over button on life and on painful chapters of life. And He has brought you here. This I believe this so much. I believe this. He has brought you here this morning to see his light, to hear that he loves you and he's not forgotten about you. And it's in moments like these, it's in moments like these that we find ourselves like Saul laying in a dusty road, having our own destination in mind, right? Thinking we were seeing things clearly on our own, but now blinded by a flash, blinded by a tragedy, blinded by a disappointment, can't see clearly, can't think clearly because of a broken heart, because of a destroyed hope. It's in moments like this that we, 
like Saul, have to decide how we are going to respond to the light of Jesus Christ. And that's why you're here this morning. This is what it's all about. How are you going to respond to his light? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the grace and the mercy that he's shown you? What are you going to do with the kindness that has brought you here, that is bringing you close, that is telling you this morning that you're loved and not forgotten, that is telling you this morning that there's forgiveness and new beginnings and all of it? It's amazing to me for Saul, who had his name changed at that point in his life to Paul, a new chapter in, in almost every way. He even changed his name to Paul because God told him to change his name. For Paul, it began with baptism. And listen, if that's not you yet, that's fine. I'm not pushing anybody. I'm the world's worst salesman. I'll never push you into baptism. But at some point, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You need to. I'm telling you, there was nothing like it. And it makes no sense. We get a horse trough and fill it with water from the janitor's closet. Like, that's not holy water. It's regular water. That, that's surprise anybody? Everybody got like real quiet when I'm talking. <gasps> it's not? Like, <laughs> I need to go somewhere else to get baptized. We'll make it warm for you. It's nice. But I'm telling Rita, you remember when you go down in that water, it's not the water, it's not the horse trough that we use, it's nothing like that. It's your trust, it's that believing in thing, it's that resting. Like sitting on a chair, it's placing your life publicly declaring before everybody, I am placing my trust and my hope in the name and the reign and the authority and the beauty and the mercy and kindness of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, there's something about I still remember it. When I got, I got baptized in a jacuzzi, it was crazy. And they had, Don Halstead turned the, the temperature on the water like above boiling. I'm pretty sure it was boiling. Like, I mean, they were baptizing me. If they had thrown in a couple of potatoes and some meat, like we could have had a stew after I was done getting baptized. It was so hot, so hot. There's no reason for it to be that hot. We won't make it that hot, I promise. But when you... I can still remember when you go under that water, and I talk about this all the time with those that are wanting to be baptized. Like you go under that water and you hold your breath, and if you're a really bad sinner, we'll hold you down for a long... No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. We'll hold everybody down the same, all right? But just when you go under that water and you feel the water close over you, and like the music's going, and you know like when you're underwater, like all the sounds sound different. Like it's just that brief moment when you're under the water, and then you come back up and you feel that water break over your face, and you take that first breath, you know, and you're breathing in the air of a brand new life, and you realize, oh, come on, can we pause? Can we just stop for a second, and can you give God thanks and praise for brand new beginning? Come on, anybody with a new life, anybody with a new beginning here this morning, anybody want to lift up your voice and say, thank you, Jesus? There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it to breathe in your first breath as a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. Your life has been changed and it begins to be filled with his light as you begin to open up and surrender different parts of your life to him. And the light that started shining not around Paul anymore began to shine from within Paul from then on. And Paul changed the world because of the light and the love, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. But you have your own story. You have your own opportunities. 
You have your own challenges. You have your own areas of life that you've disappointed and frustrated God and pushed God away and not allowed God in and not given God access. You have your own story to tell. You have your own design and purpose that God created you especially to accomplish. But you have to take that step to follow the light. And the thing is, you've been wrestling with it. You've been struggling with it. You've been fighting it. You've been pushing back against it. But you are making some steps. You're here. Hello. You're here. And next Sunday, you're going to be here again. Yeah. And Wednesday at 7.25 p.m., where are you going to be? Here. Exactly. And not too long from now, we're going to be baptizing you as you follow Jesus into his mercy and grace and the beautiful light that he is. And it's a scary decision. It's a scary moment in life. It takes reflection. It takes a self-assessment. It takes a reckoning. And if you're wrestling with surrendering your life to the light, you're not the first and you won't be the last. And Jesus even talked about this. I love the way the New Living Translation puts this. Luke tells us about the time that Jesus talked about this to some people who were struggling and wrestling to follow him. And Jesus told them, my light will shine for you just a little longer. So walk in the light while you can so that the darkness, hello, the darkness in you, the darkness that has hurt you, the darkness in you that has hurt others, the darkness from others that has threatened to overwhelm you and take away your peace and take away your sanity, so that the darkness will not overtake you. Why, Jesus? Because those who walk in darkness cannot see where they're going. It's pretty basic. Anybody ever been hurt in life and you don't know what to do next? This is what he's talking about. But you don't have to stay in the darkness. And so he says, put your trust in the light while there is still time. And then you will become children. Children of the light. Children of the light. I love little kids, man. It's awesome. Kids are so fun. I love it. I mean, just I can remember when Caleb was, you know, like three years old and I'd come home from work and and he'd just run and throw himself into my arm. I used to love that man. Loved wrestling with Caleb. Caleb had a huge head. He's, you know, I used to love wrestling with Caleb. Could never palm his head. Could never palm. <laughs> I loved wrestling with Caleb. I loved playing with Caleb. Caleb used to pretend like he was a dinosaur all the time. He went through that big time phase. He was a dinosaur. He'd run around on all fours. And I used to tell him, you know, like, look where you're going, son. He wouldn't look where he's going. He just kept running around on all fours. One day he's running around on all fours. He came up to a corner and thwack, man. Hit a corner of the wall right in the middle of his forehead. And it was the funniest thing. I don't know why this isn't in my notes, but it's the funniest thing. He got like a big egg on his head, but right where he had hit the corner, it was a crack. <laughs> and you know what I mean when I say there was a crack. It was funny. So Caleb really, well, I'm not going to say that word in church. That's really what he was like. I love wrestling with I love kids. The way he would jump to me, it was so awesome. Tell him, jump, jump. I'd put him up on the bed. We used to have a bed with the drawers underneath, you know, so it was really high off the ground. He'd be up on the, jump to dad, jump to dad. I used to teach him to jump on the bed. I used to teach him to jump off the bed. And then when Chelsea was around, I'd say, quit jumping on the bed. <laughs> I remember I was teaching him to jump on the bed one day and, and uh, teaching him to jump off the bed. You know, he's getting a little bit bigger. And so He's, you know, up there on the bed. And I told him, okay, bounce a couple times, then you got to jump. Bounce a couple times, then you got to jump. So he bounced a couple times, and he went to jump. And when he did, he jumped, and his feet caught the edge, right? 
and he came forward like that and landed on his head, and then his body kept going over like that. It's like something out of one of those horror movies, and I thought, I just killed my kid. Yeah, I just like, I didn't even help him out. I just turned around and walked away. I was like, I got to go check out the insurance policy. I don't know what's going to happen next. Like, I thought I killed the kid. I, I loved hurting my kid. I loved playing with my kid. There's something about a kid. Just so awesome. The way they call you dad. I took Caleb to a soccer game last night. He doesn't jump in my arms anymore. Now he wants me to take him to soccer games. Buy him $25 falafels from the food truck. Like, what in the world? It's a falafel. Come on. Like, and it wasn't that good either. It's just, you know, and, but just coming home and just even at, you know, 17 and a half years old, whatever he is, something about. And Caleb says, Dad, thanks. Dad, I love you. Mm, man. JL last night, man, I got home and JL came up and she said, I missed you. It's like, it's floored. I was like, help me up off the ground. I, who are you and what have you done with my daughter? Like, you know, she hugged me. She gave me a kiss on the, isn't it the best when kids give you kisses and you don't make them? You know what I mean? Because sometimes you got to make your kid give me a kiss. Here's some candy for a kiss, you know? Like, she gave me a kiss. My 15-year-old little girl gave me a kiss, put her arms around my neck, said, Dad, I love you. And Jesus is saying, look, if you'll just put your trust in me, well, there's still time. You've been battling all this darkness. You've been facing all this. You've been trying to go through all this and deal with it all on your own. Dustin, quit playing with your kid and come do the music. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> where was I? Jesus is saying, like, if you'll trust in me, listen to me, hope in me, believe in me, rest in me. Put all of your weight on me and see if I can hold you. Put all of your dreams on me and see if I'll ever let you down. Put all of your trust in who I promise to always be to you. Put all of your hopes in my promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. Mm. Come on, somebody. Can you give him thanks? Come on, can you love him this morning? If you put your trust in me while there's still time, then you will become children of the light. Children of the light. What a beautiful description of his church. What a beautiful description his church. Not finger pointers of the light, not haters and shouters, picket sign carriers of the light. But Jesus, could you make me a children of your a child of your light? That I would follow you around in awe and in wonder at everything you were and everything you said and all the ways that you were, all the ways that you loved and that you forgave and you gave grace and mercy and peace all of the ways that you have loved me, found me who I was and where I was, help me to become a child of that light, a son of that light. Help those of us here to become daughters of your light, of your love, of your mercy, of your grace. But after saying these things, Jesus went away. He was hidden from them. He was hidden from them. Suddenly, they couldn't see Jesus anymore. Couldn't see Jesus anymore. And I know what's going to happen because 
you know, it's just the way life is. I know exactly what's going to happen. We can feel the presence of God. You can feel that pull of God in this moment. And we feel it all over this room. But then the service is going to be over. And you're going to walk out those doors. And life's going to punch you in the mouth. And your brokenness is still going to be there. Your hurt and the questions and the doubts and all of those things are still going to be there. And when you get outside these doors, if you don't make a decision at some point, if you don't tell Jesus you're ready to start the journey at some point, I know exactly what's going to happen because it happened in my own life. I've heard it in the lives of others. There's going to come a time when Jesus will become hidden to you. The darkness will be all that you can see and there won't be any more hope. There won't be any more light. But respond to the light. Trust in the light while there is still time. If you'll trust in him, you can become a child, a child of the light, a child of the light. His light reborn, duplicated in all of, all of us. Can we all stand this morning? I wonder today, like, what new reality could exist in our worlds if we all chose to be the reflection of his light, to be the children of his light? What new reality could exist in your home if you chose to be a child of his light? What new reality could exist in your relationships, right? What, what new reality could exist in your neighborhood? If you began loving your next-door neighbor like Jesus loved you, hello, your Republican next-door neighbor, your Democrat next-door neighbor, can you imagine what your world would look like if people who were nothing like you knew that you loved them like Jesus loved them? Can you imagine if the hungry and the hurting of your world found food and found help and found compassion in you and through you? If the light of Jesus Christ, if you became a child of that light and began to spread that light through your world, can you see what your family life could be like, your, your home life, your work life, if the people around you, you know, you gave to them, you forgave them, if you put them before yourself, if you put what was best for them over what was best for you, what would your boss think? What would your fellow coworkers think? What would your employees think? People that you're over, the people that you lead, what would they think if you loved them like Jesus loved you? So we stand here this morning on August 4th of 2019 with two more senseless tragedies under our belt as a nation. I think it's time for our world to see a different kind of light. Hello. I think it's time for our world to see a different hope. I think it's time for our world to stop looking in the normal places for, solution, for solutions and for answers because it's not coming from them. It's never going to come from them. They can make all of the laws they want, but laws will never make people good. What changes us, what transforms us is the light of Jesus Christ being born in each and every one of us, each and every person in this room making a decision today while there is still light to walk in the light, to trust in that light, to be that light in each of our own worlds. And together, as we begin to change, we begin to light up our world, I'm telling you, this world will never be the same. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.